Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Thank you all for being here. I'm Karthik Ramakrishnan. I'm the executive director of California 100, which is a transformative initiative incubated out of Stanford University and the University of California, and especially the Goldman School of Public Policy. What we're presenting today is an important piece of a journey that's been almost two years in the making. And it's something that not only California has not seen before, no other state in the country has seen this before, which is to take research on a variety of areas. People said it was too much. You might have heard about the Future of Work Commission uh, that was commissioned by the governor a few years ago uh, that was focused on a single topic and its intersection with a few other topics. Well, we have 15 topics that we're tackling simultaneously. And the reason why we're doing this is we realize that when you start to try to address one problem, usually there's some other issue very closely related. And what we're going to present today is, is a set of poll findings, and I'll say a little bit about deliberative polling in a minute, uh, that draws upon the research talent not only within the California 100 team, but of 20 research centers throughout the state, including from the Opportunity Institute, and we'll be hearing from Maria Echeveste, who's the CEO of the Opportunity Institute um, this evening. So it's pretty incredible to be able to draw upon all of that research talent and then to have that as the knowledge base for a set of deliberative democracy exercises where we survey people before they get into these conversations that are informed by all of this research with pro-arguments and con-arguments, and to have the ability to be in conversation with each other and to hear from expert panelists. That's going to be the, the focus, the kind of the knowledge base on which we'll be drawing this conversation today. Before we get started, I want to acknowledge some important people in the room, including Jim Fishkin, who's a professor at Stanford University and the, the founder and director of the Deliberative Democracy Lab. Alice Sue from his team was also very invaluable in the design of this work and the important insights that flow out of it. So I want to recognize David Wilson, who's the dean of the Goldman School of Public Policy and has been an important champion uh, of this work and supporting this work all along. Henry Brady, our director of research, the former dean of the Goldman School of Public Policy, um, has been tireless getting, uh, get, rolling up the sleeves and, and, and really getting into the research in addition to supporting all of the other amazing research that, uh, that, 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 we have, uh, that, that we have drawn upon throughout the state. Lindsay Maple, uh, our Deputy Director of Research, has similarly, with Henry, uh, been so involved in this study and so many other studies. So I want to give them both a, a very special thanks for uh, for their incredible work. Now, before we jump into the conversation today, I just want to uh, remind everyone to uh, to keep uh, to keep the questions uh, that 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 spring up in the course of the conversation to save that to the end. We definitely want to make room for audience questions. If you have a question for me or any of our guests uh, who are here in person, please write down the question on on the cards that are in your seats. Uh, if you're watching online, please put them in the YouTube chat feature, and questions will be forwarded to me throughout the program. 
And I hope that we can get to as many of these questions as possible. Okay, now before we invite our special guest today, let me just say a little bit about what California 100 in collaboration with Sanford's Deliberative Democracy Lab and the Goldman School of Public Policy released today. What we released today were the results of a deliberative poll, and this is a trademark uh, feature. Uh, Jim Fishkin is the brainchild behind it. Um, and it's different from a standard survey or a poll. A standard survey or poll asks questions of residents, um, and it doesn't provide much in the way of information, and it doesn't allow people to have a back and forth, either with peers or with experts. So this is different. There have been dozens of deliberative polls that have been done before, but this is the first time we've ever had a deliberative poll that has a significant future consideration built into it. Um, and that's different. Uh, and I think some of the results that we're seeing um, sh are, are the result, you know, show the effect of getting Californians to think of the further future, as Jim Fishkin puts it. We have over 700 Californians that participated in this deliberative democracy exercise, featuring a diversity throughout the state, not only by race and gender, but also by party affiliation and region in the state. And that's important. Uh, it's important to try to recreate the incredible diversity in California and to see what happens when you enter into a room, in this case it was virtual rooms, um, and enable residents, regardless of their citizenship status, but to be in dialogue with each other and to see their considered judgments that flow out of those conversations. I'll just highlight some of the major findings uh, that should be food for thought, not only today, but hopefully in the months and years to come. One, we find a high level of interest in civics education and strengthening our democracy in different ways. The strongest findings, and there was a big increase before and after deliberation, uh, was this notion that California should strengthen its high school civics requirement to include experiences with participation, discussion, negotiation, and compromise in a democracy. This should give us all hope, because right now we're in a period of pretty intense polarization and people feeling like they have the right answer and people who disagree with them uh, are, are do not. Um, no matter what the situation is in California today, it doesn't sound like they want to reproduce that dynamic with the next generation. So that should be a hopeful sign. The next highest level of support surprised me. I'm a political scientist who's been doing public opinion research for a while. 77% of Californians say that the state should provide universal, free mental health care. That blew me away. This includes Republicans as well as Democrats, as well as those who are no party preference. We also see a strong interest among Californians for government to work better. Now, there are two different versions of this that you might think of as maybe a traditionally progressive idea or maybe a more conservative pro-business idea. And we find high levels of support for both of these ideas, that California should create a much more streamlined and simple process, a one-stop shop, it's literally the language that we used, for businesses 
to obtain local permits on a range of items, including water, sewer, electricity, parking, land use, and business licensing. Before deliberation, 62% supported that. After deliberation, nearly 76% supported that. At the same time, very similarly worded question, that California should develop a one-stop shop for easier access by the public for government services for those who are dealing with unemployment and poverty, that went up from 69% to 78%. So at the end, you have 78% of people saying, we need to improve the coordination of government services for those who are low income, and 76% saying that we need to coordinate government services for new businesses that are trying to form in a particular area. What this suggests to me is that California is ready not only for aspirational thinking and policies that, uh, that might be ambitious, but also policies that are very practical, that just want government to work better, to do what it's supposed to do in order to serve the people, including those who most need it. We have a lot more findings uh, that we'll have the chance to get through in our conversation today. Uh, and with that, I would love to invite our panelists to the stage. Um, so first, uh, as, as they walk up, Lenny Mendonca, former senior advisor to Governor Newsom. Angela Glover Blackwell, founder in residence at PolicyLink. And Maria Echeveste, the CEO of Opportunity Institute. So these are all incredible leaders in their own right, and, and usually you would see them at a TED Talk kind of stage holding forth. So we're really lucky to have them all here in the same room uh, for us to be able to dig in, not only uh, in the, for the findings of this deliberative democracy poll that we have, but to flesh out the larger implications and meanings. You've all had leadership roles in public service, in the nonprofit sector, um, and just in civil society more, more generally, and I'm excited for this conversation. By the way, they've all read the major findings in the report <laughs> as well, so these are very prepared individuals, um, and, I, and I think we're going to have a really fun, impactful, and engaging conversation. So first, I want to lift up this finding about 77% of Californians ready to support free, universal mental health care. Angela, I'd like to go to you first on this. And when you saw that, did that surprise you at all? Only for a second. Mm. I was surprised for a second, and then I wasn't surprised. I was very pleased. Mm. I was very pleased to see it. The reason it didn't surprise me is because I think that mental health now is sort of the way that the public was feeling at the time that we passed the Equality of Marriage Act. I think everybody related to that as being a place that we needed to go because they had people in their families, in their workplace, in their social circles who were suffering or they felt that they would be um, healthier if we weren't so prejudiced against people's love choices. I think the same is true in terms of mental health. It's touching everybody, and it has for a long time. And for many years, people held it close, but now they're more open about it. And they also see that the things that are really troubling the broader society in terms of people who are unsheltered, 
in terms of people feeling sometimes that they're not safe because people are having mental uh, episodes that they think interfere. And so it didn't surprise me, but it's just one of the many examples out of this poll that I think highlights the amazing generosity of Californians. Um, And I also just want to compliment you for doing this deliberative process and focusing it on the future. Because too often when you look at the results of polling, it's about what people are saying in a moment where they've had very little thought, and they certainly aren't thinking in relationship to where we're going and who we're going to be in the future. So I like that. Thank you, Angela. And really, it's been such a strong and great partnership with the Sanford Deliberative Democracy Lab to bring both of those elements together, the deliberation part and the long-term futures focus. And I hope that this can inspire more such exercises in the so. future. So on mental health, Maria, I wanted, uh, you know, education is one of the issues that you're passionate about, and we'll talk about some of the education findings, but you know, there's been so much, not only in terms of learning loss, but just the kind of trauma that young people mm. are grappling with. There's attention at the state level to try to increase investments in terms of counselors and mental health provision in school settings. Are we doing enough on this? No, I don't think we are. Um, and part of the earlier, um, the highlight of the real interest in the public to have a more effective government is very applicable in this moment, given the state's big investments in education. One of the findings was that Californians support having California spend uh, to ensure student achievement in the top third of the 50 states. Well, it turns, it's a little bit apples to oranges because you can spend a lot of money, but the question is, is it spent effectively? And right now in California, the governor of this administration, $4 billion for community schools, which seeks to integrate services and supports, including mental health, extended learning, another $6 billion, um, $4 billion for uh, youth and mental health, behavioral health. And the question is, where is the coordination? Who is paying attention to the implementation and the execution? Um, And I have to say, and I've been around politics, so I understand the motivation of elected officials, legislature or executive branch. They want to point to a program that they passed, a law that they passed. We, as citizens, as residents of the state, really have to say we're paying attention to what you actually do with the law because the law is written, but then it has to be implemented. And we have great schools of public policy, of management, of public affairs. We need to build the government infrastructure in the same way business works on talent to build the talent to deliver the you know, California, fifth largest economy. We have terrific businesses. We need to give the same kind of attention to government implementation, execution. And we're not going to have future that we all want if we're not educating effectively the next generation. Well, let's dig into this question a little bit uh, in terms of implementation. And Lenny, I'll go to you because you you had a stint in state government. Um, we think of innovation, and you know, I, I founded a Center for Social Innovation. Innovation is usually about newness and generating new ideas. Of course, implementation matters, and then the evaluation matters. But 
as I've observed California over the last two decades, there doesn't seem to be a strong appetite in the legislature for evaluation work. They do oversight. But um, how can we improve implementation and evaluation of, of, what, uh, of, of the bills we pass, of the monies we spend? No, I think it is um, really important and underappreciated. And uh, the reality, the unfortunate reality, is there is very little attention paid, whether it's within the legislature or within the public or within the media, about how something is implemented unless there's a scandal. And then you've got everybody and their brother kind of chiming on, doing audits and all kinds of investigative reporting. That's mostly not what we're talking about. I think what we're talking about is effective implementation of the, implementation of the core activities of government. And there, it, it is a challenge in part because it isn't recognized and rewarded very much. Um, there, the way California's um, delivery system for public services work is works is a lot of the implementation actually happens at different levels of government than at the state legislature. So you need oversight and, and, and uh, understanding of implementation at the level where the execution actually happens, as opposed to a legislature who has three levels of distance from where the work is actually happening, trying to do that. And then I do think it's a important issue about the for the executive branch, who's responsible for a lot of this, to ensure that they have the kind of attention and capability that they need to ensure that we have effective oversight and implementation. Um, you know, one of the fortunate things of not having an endless stream of massive budget surpluses, you don't have to continually be thinking about what's the new programs we're going to launch, mm -hmm. but I suspect you will be hearing a lot more about effectiveness of what we're doing because resources isn't as fluid as it once was, but it, it honestly is not a top five priority for most legislators, not even close. So let's talk about that, right? I mean, there's widespread anticipation that there's going to be a fair amount of belt tightening uh, in the state budget. Uh, and you had a fair uh, n amount of service, social service expansion, health and social service expansion uh, over the last few years. Is there a conversation, Lenny, and let's open it up to others as well, about instead of cutting those social services in a one-to-one -one correspondence, can we try to focus more on effectiveness and efficiency to try to continue to be able to provide the services to the populations that need it most? You know, I think it will be part of the conversation almost by definition because the budget process is one step with when, where you really do have to make trade-offs around what's getting funded and not. And in an environment where there is scarcity of resources, there are a lot of interests trying to ensure that there isn't, theirs isn't the one that's being cut. And so the, the um, requirement of ensuring that there is effectiveness and that you can communicate that with real information and, and um, substance is an important part of it. But um, again, the, you know, there's, it's not just state streams of money that are coming in that we have to think about. Right. There's a massive amount of federal money that's come in through the various programs and more coming with the infrastructure and other bills. And so thinking about how that gets deployed effectively is a big deal. And we're under-resourced and under-capability um, to really do that very well, unfortunately. So, Angela, let's, yeah, let's go to you. Um, you know, this finding about a one-stop shop for different kinds of services that people are eligible for but not, might not be either automatically enrolled in or knowing how to navigate these services. 
you've been, a, you know, you were a founder of PolicyLink, and, and I'm sure that, you know, that's been top of mind for so many people that are thinking about how do we make sure that people are effectively able to access the services that they're entitled to? That's a perfect question for me to answer. Um, and it allows me to say everything I wanted to say about your other question. Um, like this? It's a perfect question for me to answer because one-stop shops was something that I was an advocate for when I used to run the Urban Strategies Council. Mm. And that's got to be more than 30 years ago. <laughs> and so it is so, it's a remix, it is so <laughs> frustrating, the distance from when it becomes obvious that we need to do something and when it gets to be part of the popular discussion and when it finally gets to be the point where it could be implemented and then you run up against what Maria was just describing in terms of all the lack of coordination and the way that we're not implementing in ways that are sophisticated. I'm hoping that this future focus, and it's why I love this future focus, because the future of California is dependent on what happens to the very people who have been disproportionately left behind, neglected, and underinvested in. And when we have passed programs, we have been so, we do it grudgingly. We do it because shame on us for not having done something as a state or as a nation. We don't do it understanding that our future, our well-being, the very um, thriving possibility is dependent on these programs getting the resources they need and delivering the results that we want, which is why we ask for them in the first place. And so being able to combine um, I really do feel a generous spirit. This poll represents a generous spirit underfoot here in California. We need to combine that generous spirit with a real understanding of the future and what's at stake, with the kind of legislation and government programming that we need and a commitment to outcomes that are essential. Because if we don't get outcomes for the children who are going to be the future, the future is not bright. I want to jump in for yeah, two, two reasons. One is that um, to the point about why this is so important, the majority of children in California are in low income, are born to low income working class families. There's a statistic. Uh, it was the 2015 um, California's Commission on Women and Children, Girls and Women, and Two-thirds of all the children born that year were born to women with a high school education, maybe a year of college. Okay? Two-thirds. We all should understand 20% were to college graduates, 10% to those with professional degrees. So we all now, I think, have come to learn a lot about uh, early literacy uh, uh, vocabulary, how important zero to three is. So I just want to underscore, then that leads me to, well, you get what you measure, right? Bureaucracies, all of us, um, what my boss wants, uh, whether I was working for a president or... <laughs> um, you, so we need to really get a little wonky and focus on what are the outcomes, what are, and there's some wonderful, PolicyLink has been a leader in, in indicators and in racial equity, but there's education. Think about it. What are the non-education indicators that impact academic achievement? It turns out it's things like access to mental health services, social services, homelessness, right? Similarly, what are non-health 
indicators that impact um, uh, a young person's health. Oh, you're not reading at fourth grade level. That's affecting your self-esteem, your sense of self. It's impacting your health. So I really believe that we need to roll up our sleeves. Um, there's some really interesting work going on both in California and across the country on what are the right measurements. Um, Urban Institute is doing something on economic indicators of mobility tied to the education system. But let me stop there. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and I want to give you know, a shout out to some of the ways in which California is trying to take those bigger steps, right, with this cradle to career data system so that we have the kind of evidence that we need to think about this, right, from from beginning through, right, from pre-K all the way through career success and seeing that as a lifelong process. Cal-AIM, right, advancing innovations in Medi-Cal to think about Medi-Cal eligible populations and what does innovation look like when you have coordinated care with that population. Still will take a few years to see the fruits of that, but I, I think there are hopeful signs. I think it's really important to think of data for continuous improvement. Mm -hmm. In education, unfortunately, notwithstanding all the wonderful motivations for No Child Left Behind, for the Every Student Succeeds Act, by focusing on fourth grade reading test scores and eighth grade math and putting the pressure essentially on the least powerful, the students and the teachers, we did not. There was a sense by George Miller, who was a key author of uh, No Child Left Behind, a sense that once you know and you see the disparities, the system would change. Well, it didn't. So we need to identify the right metrics and use them not as a gotcha. Yes, accountability, but also how do we improve? How do we improve? Continuous improvement. Great. Well, I want to shift a bit on some of the findings that relate to businesses. And Lenny, you, uh, you are not only Governor Newsom's senior advisor, but you, you, you essentially headed up the uh, GOBiz, the Governor's Office of Business and Economic Development. Is that the yeah. right full title? Uh, so I'll read a couple of these findings here and would love to get your thoughts and reactions. One, strong support for this notion that California should examine its regulations for businesses to make sure that the benefits are greater than the costs. We already talked about the one-stop shop uh, aspect to make it easier to do business in California. So can you say a bit about that? I mean, are businesses over-regulated in California? Or have we, do we know enough about the effect of regulations to make sure that the social benefits exceed the costs that might be borne? So um, I think the idea of a, a streamlined process for approval that is not attempting to say the aspiration that the regulation was set out to achieve is wrong, but that it can be implemented in ways that has counterproductive um, effects and makes it too complicated and expensive to do business. I think that is a very powerful and important way to come at this, at this idea. So um, permitting for new business is one example of that. The, it, <clears throat> part of the reason it takes so uh, that housing is so expensive in the state of California, which is a huge business um, competitiveness issue, because it takes too long and costs too much to get housing approved. And that's not to say we shouldn't have discipline in what our building standards and our approval processes are, but it shouldn't take five times as long as it does in Texas to go from an, here's a approved in the local plan 
lot for a house to something that's actually built. Mm-hmm. We need to focus on that. And I do think there is, these are not you know, new ideas in the kind of concept, nor are they um, uh, unfamiliar process changes. So effe- effectively what you, we uh, should be doing on some of the business um, interaction processes is, is treat it as um, a leaning out the process approach that is happening all over other business activities. And again, I don't think there's a lot of appetite for saying we're going to lower our environmental standards or we're going to lower our labor standards. It's about how do you do that in a way that accomplishes the goals but does it with much less time and pain along the way. And last thing I'd say is I'll do this by an anecdote. I had one very visible and large employer in the state calling me all the time and saying, California's an impossible place to do business. Can you fix this? Can you fix this? And finally, I said, all right, let's sit down and talk about what you're actually talking about. What is getting in your way? Mm. And it turned out what they were most concerned about was how long it took to get a plant expansion approval done that was driven by one county. And so, you know, we have a lot of different people who are involved in those kinds of decisions. And it's only when you get specific about what issue are we trying to solve. And that took one phone call to take care of. Mm. And so, you know, uh, I had another example of a restaurant that was on all over social media saying they couldn't open for the holidays because they couldn't get the permits that they wanted to be able to open. It was going to ruin them because they put all this money in and they missed the holiday season. So I told our team, go talk to them, find out what the issue is, go work with the city and make sure they're open. And it actually was because they weren't adhering to one of the requirements that they were just ignoring. It's like, well, you do that, and they got open by Christmas. So, again, these things are... Their, their execution discipline that is not um, a, it's a uh, atrophied muscle in most of the state. Well, I must say, as a, as a political scientist and a scholar of public policy, it's been relatively late in my scholarly career to discover uh, the importance of relationships and, and that kind of communication, right? I mean, we think about, we think about rules, we think about resources, but to think that relationship, I mean, who would have thought, what, were the fourth largest, fifth or fourth largest economy, that sometimes it's maybe you don't know all the information and a phone call can make a difference. Like That blows my mind. But it, but it makes a difference, apparently. Yeah. No, it does. But it shouldn't. <laughs> I think that thing, it shouldn't depend upon right. that you know someone, right? Because that, that, that's not good government. Um, it's... There's something, having written regulations, we need a a floor, right, that sets behavior for all. Sometimes what happens, and I'm a lawyer, so I say this advisedly, sometimes lawyers get in the way because they're thinking about every single possible thing that go, go wrong. But as a business person, all I really want to know is what, what do I need to do so that you, government, do not find me? Make it simple. And um, I think you, I, w- when I ran Wage and Hour at the Department of Labor, we wrote the regs for Family Medical Leave Act, and we had to do it in six months. And I, I credit the fact that I was a lawyer, that I could go toe-to-toe with the solicitor's office and say, we're going to write the regs for the majority of employers, not that special case where you know that person's going to sue no matter what, Let's let's worry about the the bad employers. Let's let's treat the majority of employers as people who want to do the right thing, 
whether they believe in it or because they just don't want to deal with the government. So let me read this question that comes from the audience here that is very much related to this conversation. There's a lot here, so I'm going to try to summarize it a little bit. It says, getting a commitment for effective execution or implementation of public policies and meaningful outcomes requires A, essential metrics, B, an evaluation system with the talent and resources to be able to evaluate, and then C, a designated institution or institutions to assess outcomes and hold implementers accountable. Now, California 100 is about long-term futures, and we're talking about, at the very least, elected officials that have very short-term accountability clocks, right, Um, where they go up in front of voters every two years, every four years. So what kind of institutions or leaders have the longevity and the stature in order to be able to do this? Um, And it says, can the legislative analyst office head this, or should there be some other kind of agency to improve and and have evaluation and accountability when it comes to implementation? What do you think? So, again, uh, it's a great question. Uh, The challenge with doing it at the state level is that that's not where the execution happens. Mm. It's mostly budgeting that then goes to the counties or the cities to execute. And so, uh, as an example, if you look at the data about the quality of implementation of some, pick your favorite program, health, social services, um, education, the quality of delivery by county varies dramatically. And there are some counties that are really, really good and have a lot of what we're talking about, and then there's some that do not. And so if I were going to do it, I would think about it more at that level where the actual delivery happens to think about the kind of capabilities that we need, the metrics, the the accountability, and um, take some places that are really good and spotlight them and talk about what's possible. Unfortunately, sometimes when you enter this question, the the first inclination is to punish the outliers that are really bad. Mm. And that's important if there's fraud and other things going on, but it's not actually motivating for most people who are genuinely trying to do a good job, just don't know how and don't feel like feel like they're too constrained to do it. But taking some people and saying, okay, you're good at this. Now what we're going to do is actually make single-stop work for social services. So we're going to take a county and say, if you, any resident in that county that uh, uh, submits their information is eligible for the earned income tax credit, you have to Put your tax form there. All the information you need for every other social service that you're eligible for, almost all of it is on that form. Right. So why don't we automatically enroll you in every other thing that you're eligible for make, and say you're going to opt out as opposed to saying every time you have to apply for another program, it's like you're a new person. That's right. right. So a, a county could do that if they really chose. But let's figure out how to do that. So I love that answer. And I wanted you to go first because I was surprised at the end of the question that it talked about this legislative uh, approach, that what we need to do is get close to the ground. Mm -hmm. Being proximate is the way to figure out implementation. And if you can figure it out, then you can come back and hold people accountable for implementing in a way that we now know works, in a way that we now know works. What was so interesting about this poll is that people gravitated to the one stop for people who are low income income, struggling how to get their lives together, and they gravitated to it for the businesses that are trying to figure out how to make their businesses work and not be so burdened that they can't uh, function. What it suggests is that we in California understand the similarities, that there is no reason why a low-income person who is least able to go to five, six different places and still get the kids 
from school on time and do all these other things. That should be one stop. And people who are trying to run businesses, that should be one stop. And once we figure out what to do in that one stop, then we can step back and hold counties, cities, state accountable for outcomes because then we will know what it is they're supposed to be doing. Absolutely. And by the way, most the average business is a small business, right? Yeah. And that, right. that's where they, mm-hmm. they often um, struggle. Um, Can I just say one point? Yes, if you haven't ahead. seen it, there's a Netflix show called The Maid that was based on a, a book, mm. semi-autobiographical book, and about four episodes into it, it takes place in uh, Washington State. The protagonist is a woman who left an abusive relationship with her child and ended up having to be struggling for how to make ends meet. And there's one episode that she is trying to enroll in the variety of different programs for which she is eligible. And it is a um, incredibly tear-jerking and painful depiction of it, but it's done in a way that is um, like comical. It's like, it is literally impossible to do all of the things that she is being asked to do to get things for which she is technically eligible. And it's yeah. just a, you know, if you haven't actually experienced this, you don't realize how hard this is. This yeah. is like impossible. Well, and to Angela's point, I mean, it's, you need to not only then get closer to the ground, but also have a more human-centered approach. Exactly. More, Absolutely. Right? More human-centered approach, but also this came up some years ago when California was implementing um, CHIPS, Children's Health Insurance, Healthy eApp, doing the application uh, via electronically. And California had at the time the lowest uptake on food stamps. And that's money the feds provide. That's CalFresh. Um, and you, again, as Lenny says, it's the same information. So what, one of the obstacles, I'm not going to name the organized labor, but one of the obstacles was basically this office was... If we do it that way, electronically, I will be out of a job. Okay? Now, one could say there are other jobs you could be doing in social services or other parts of bureaucracy as opposed to sitting in your office and verifying the information. So there's being on the ground, you would learn about where those obstacles are and then have to roll up your sleeves and use relationships to try to navigate that. Maybe with, uh, as we're talking about budget tightening, that could be that impetus. One thing I'll I'll say, just maybe editorializing a little bit here, I and many others hope that with the kind of windfall in revenues that state governments and local governments got over the last few years, that they could have done more data infrastructure work and other infrastructure building uh, to be able to ensure effective implementation. I remember talking to someone in a state agency that, that disperses money across counties. And I asked, well, can we find out, can we do a query on the race and ethnicity of different people accessing these services across counties? And this person laughed and they said, well, if only we could do that. But that blew my mind. Here is a state government that is sending all that money over to the county. uh, And yet we've missed an opportunity to create a, a, a kind of common infrastructure to be able to understand, right, to detect where the problem spots are at any given time. Uh, But hopefully we can do that moving forward. There is a federal law passed, I want to say three years ago, and the name escapes me, but it was passed, uh, authored by Paul Ryan, normally not someone I share ideology with. 
And he directed that government, federal government must um, start collecting data on the effectiveness of their programs, I believe, in order to demonstrate the programs don't work and therefore on the chopping block. But there's, there is something there that if we're interested in effectiveness, and to the point, there's a lot of federal money coming to the state. But it's one of those sleeper, again, wonky issues that very few people are paying attention to. And we and do we have to, to be careful about how we do it. Yes, um, absolutely. I mean, this idea of not to be punished, let's know where we are so we can see where we need to focus, where you need resources, where you need technical assistance, where you need to partner with another jurisdiction that's got it right. It's not to say the program doesn't work, let's get rid of it. It's not to say the program doesn't work and so we can give you less money to do it. Right. It's the program is not achieving the goals that we want. How do we get there? Yep. <laughs> Let me read this other question that just came in, uh, and it relates to infrastructure, mm-hmm. something very um, uh, resonant as we think about long-term futures, right? So this question asks, as the Biden administration's infrastructure bill was passed and resources are now on their way, what has the state government done to plan for strong implementation? Is there a task force or bringing together of planners or others to make sure that we take full advantage of this once-in-a-generation opportunity? I'm going to go to you, mm-hmm. Angela, because I know the policy link, first of all, was trying to help the administration as much as possible to make sure that equity was in the design of that infrastructure bill. But, but how is it going? A policy link early on associated racial equity with infrastructure. Mm. And we kept waiting for Infrastructure Week. You know, we had (laughs) op-eds ready to go. We were ready to bring people out. You know, Infrastructure Week just never quite happened. Now we've got infrastructure. We have resources. And there's really quite a lot going on, uneven, but a lot going on across the country to make sure that these infrastructure dollars are utilized in a way that we're making decisions about what to invest in based on what the people who live in the community need, about how to make sure that people get these jobs. Infrastructure is big job, a big job opportunity, and people who need jobs need to be able to get them. Yeah. And also to make sure that we are thinking about how to bring real participation into all of this decision making. PolicyLink is involved with many jurisdictions, and uh, there are several foundations that have made this their highest priority. Uh, Bloomberg Philanthropies is one, but there are several that are really putting money into community, both to bring uh, voice and participation and agency to the table from communities, but to also make sure that the people in government are ready to move forward and to make sure that we're utilizing all this extraordinary technology and data capacity we have all across the country to be able to track what's going on. Um, We should be better prepared than we are because it's coming and there are a lot of places that are not right. And wouldn't you expect California to be a leader on I would expect California to be a leader. (laughs) (laughs) I would expect California to be a leader. And we need that model. We need that model. This would be a terrible uh, waste if we don't use infrastructure dollars to create the society, the the jobs, the income, the capacity for the future that we need. But it's going to take real investment. Yeah. Any other comments? Well, um, I, um, so there is a lot of work going on to help ensure that the California gets at least its share of those dollars and that they are aligned with 
priorities that are determined community up as opposed to top down. Mm -hmm. um, the governor appointed former mayor of, of Los Angeles, Antonio Villarosa, as a special advisor on infrastructure, and yep. he's been engaged via California Forward in a very large set of listening tours across the state and a set of reports about how to do that. There are other specific components of infrastructure spending. The one that I particularly focused on is broadband spending, that it is a huge difference about how well that is spent to make sure that it goes to the places that are most disadvantaged by not having access. And it's a very micro question. It's not like this county or this county. It's like this neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And there is some really good data on that. There's an organization called the California Emerging Technology Fund, which is Sunny McPeak runs, who's mm -hmm. fabulous, um, was, is a, a, a nonprofit that's funded by when um, mergers happen in uh, uh, wireless carriers, they have to donate to this, give money to it, and it's help in its objective is to ensure universal, accessible, high-quality broadband. Yep. And so you need, and in, in I like the model in part because it's an outside-of-government entity with the right technical capability to really uh, understand and report on it and also has the ability to be an advocate for things in ways that are independent from what the government's doing. And it didn't emerge just to take advantage of the opportunity. It has been around for a while yep. Yep. that we have understood this in California and uh, Sunny's leadership has really been quite remarkable. During the COVID though, we saw that despite all of the focus that we've had on this, we were not ready. All of this focus that we've had all this time, we were not ready. And so being, um, the sense of urgency that we need and the sense of targeting that we need is what we just haven't had. Yep. And it's, it's become so urgent. And if we don't target, we lose. Let me go to a couple other questions that are picking up on particular things in this poll, including on CEQA, the California Environmental Quality Act. Uh, a couple of findings that, that, that came up that, that, were, that had significant support. One was actually initially proposed as some legislation a few years ago, but it went nowhere, which is that California should require plaintiffs and defendants in sequel losses to identify every person or entity who contributes $1,000 or more to either the plaintiff or the defendant in the lawsuit. So it's a kind of transparency measure because often you have big moneyed interests on whatever side, um, uh, but, but, but you don't know who is really... Uh, behind uh, these lawsuits. Um, is that something that, that, that is viable in yes, California? Yes, it's a great idea and it should happen. Mm -hmm. um, there, I'm not surprised that there was broad public support for transparency. There almost always is, and it's almost always a very good idea, particularly as it relates to political contributions or yeah. um, who is funding lawsuits. And the fact that you can hide behind that veil of secrecy to do things that, uh, there are many sequel lawsuits that are by competitors mm -hmm. who don't want that to happen, or it's actually someone who's using the label of environmental protection to prohibit something like affordable housing in your neighborhood. Mm -hmm. That's not what its purpose was. And so, you know, these kinds of things that say, um, let's make this aspiration. By the way, sequel was signed when, by Ronald Reagan about environmental protection. The aspirations are good, but it's been used as a a horrible vehicle to slow down and uh, make it impossible to build housing in the state of California. This is something um, I've been kind of both grappling with and evolving over time. And Angela and Maria, I would love to get your perspectives on this too, is to think about CEQA as it relates to inclusion and equity. And I don't think it's an easy relationship there because on the one hand, you can think of CEQA 
say, with a community that is resisting gentrification and displacement, maybe. But you also see CEQA used by NIMBYs in very prosperous areas that are preventing greater economic diversification. So have you thought through this in each of your purchases? It's been top of mind because Tom Edsel, um, New York Times columnist, did a piece, I think it was last week or sometime within the last 10 days, on why um, integration mm-hmm. just happened why there's so much opposition when you really get down to it. And he went through a, a number of studies looking at Charlotte uh, Mecklenburg in North Carolina. But it is this, um, when it gets down to it, especially housing segregation, becomes economic segregation as families want to protect what they have. They worry about house values. They worry about the schools. And unpacking that um, is beyond my <laughs> pay level. But the fact that some pe- folks would use CEQA or other you know, legal avenues I th- requires, I think, the state to take a really hard look. If it's committed to equity, what do we need to do to not let well-meaning, well-intentioned legislation be used in, in such ways to exclude. Can we think of a kind of equity scorecard, Angela, ways to be able to measure the impacts of policies as they're implemented um, to, to do better here? The equity scorecard sounds like the end of equity to me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we have got to think hmm. more... Um, organically than Mm. that. You know, that if we just go to a scorecard, then people are trying to figure out ways to get around Mm. it. They're trying to figure out ways to simplify it so it just becomes a check. They're trying to think, what's the least you can do and not get called out on that? I don't think that we can really have a scorecard be effective unless we really have a vision for the future. Hmm. We have to have a vision for the future, and it has to be grounded in the reality, and it has to be informed by the history. That We can't just have a vision for the future and think, oh, from now on, that's where we're going. We have to understand where we've come from and what we have to overcome. But from looking at the history, we also see what it takes to do well. You know, after World War II, California was not a thriving place. And the people who were coming to California, a lot of white people coming from all over the country who weren't educated, weren't that healthy, weren't that ready to work. California rolled up its sleeves and invested in those white people, and it became booming, bustling California, the envy of the country. We need to go back and study that because now we have a new opportunity with people of color, some are recent immigrants, some are black, some are Asian, some are indigenous, who have better education, better health, better capacity than those white people had back after World War II. But we don't have the political will, we don't have the vision of the California we can have if we make that kind of investment. First, we've got to have the right vision. Then we need to think about how are we going to measure? What are the things that people have to have? And what's the time frame, the best, fastest time frame that would get us there? Then we need to measure how we're doing in relation to that time frame. And then as people are excited about that, they see that their jobs are really going to be based on what we're able to produce, that the the country, the nation is going to do better as we move forward, then we might have a scorecard. But to start with a scorecard, mm mm-mm. Okay, well, we're going to take a clip of that, Angela, because 
California 100 is about building that vision and a roadmap on to how to get there. So I think you're absolutely right. Now, all this thing about metrics and evaluation, I think you're, you're right that, it, that, it's, that it's, not, it's not a leader, it's a follower to all these other things that need to be in place. Great. But I think that you can have the vision, but we are also hemmed in the politics, right? Mm-hmm. The politics. So, yes, Angela is correct. California made that investment. I argue that where we're, when I was growing up in this state, we spent in the top five. If our public school prepared me for college. We spend in the bottom now because of the surplus in the bottom 20, 25. Okay? That's not acceptable for such a thriving economy. So I believe what's happened in California is the convergence of um, anti-government, anti-tax, and changing demography. And those are not my kids. They don't look like me. Therefore, I'm retired, and I'm never going to repeal Proposition 13, which brings me to one of the findings in the report. Yes, we want to be generous. We want to have universal mental health. We want to have the best education system. We don't want to change Proposition 13, and we don't even want to charge taxes, sales tax, on services. Okay? That's why we have the kind of volatility in our state budget. Um, if If we were trying to just not have that volatility, the fact of the matter is the knowledge economy is about services. And I know my lawyer friends do not want sales tax to be added to their hourly bills, but, it, but we need to think about where, where we cannot tax the wealthy only to get. So we'll come, uh, before we get to this final round, uh, for each of you to give not only your hopes, but maybe a kind of a pragmatic way to make sure that our realities match our generosity of spirit or the values that we, that we hold. But before we get there, Maria, you served in the federal government, so I want to ask you, there's some questions, there's some, there's some findings here um, that get to um, federalism and this notion that California should not be held back in terms of its innovative potential on policy. So you see fairly high support for California trying to get the federal, to get Congress to pass enabling legislation so we can raise, at least not hold California back on various environmental um, policies. Also, this notion that California maybe should get together with other similar states to create interstate compacts on uh, matters of health insurance as well as environmental protection. You used to work in the federal government. Does that make you nervous to think that California might want to raise the bar and then therefore create some kind of a patchwork of policies? I think states really can and have been laboratories for innovation and experimentation. And that is, I mean, we were founded on a federalist founding documents, right? Um, We have over the decades, centuries, come to understand that we want our federal government to have a set a floor for certain things, you know, child labor laws. Really, do we want every state to make up its own? We need a floor. So I'm not concerned about that. I do think that um, we've already seen California being a leader in um, gas emissions. And we're such a big market, the vehicle manufacturers have to to pay attention. There are opportunities, the lawsuits on... um, 
vaping, Juul, I mean, we partnering, you know, the tobacco settlements, those states coming together, states attorney generals. So there is that cooperation and especially necessary when the executive branch is led by folks who may not share your ideology about what government should or shouldn't do. So, Lenny, you're doing some work on this. You have a forthcoming book, I believe. That yes, I, I think this is the 10th Amendment of the United States Constitution that says powers not explicitly enumerated to the federal government are to delegated to the states and the people is perhaps the most underutilized element of our Constitution. Um, the history of states' differentiation going back was actually states' rights and negative that what hasn't been the playbook as aggressively as it can is progressive federalism. Using that Tenth Amendment and the scale of many of the states that we're talking about, California being the largest, obviously, to really use their heft to move the needle. Um, And California has done it for a while. As Maria mentioned, auto machinery goes way back to things like appliance standards for energy efficiency. That, you know, when the economy as large as California, let alone if we collaborate with a number of other like-minded states, we are the majority of the population, the more the economic heft. You know, I really want the federal government to come along, but if they don't want to come along, we need to push them hard. And sometimes that means stepping out ahead of where the federal government is prepared and being having to fight in court. You know, this governor actually, if you recall, did that with same-sex marriage in the city of San Francisco. He's not uncomfortable using this playbook, and I think you, we should and will see a lot more of it going forward. And I think that's absolutely right, to make sure that we have a very strong floor, right? And I think the minimum wage is another example. Having a federal minimum wage does not prevent states from creating exactly. higher standards. Uh, but unfortunately, federal preemption still is being used, I think, to hold some of that innovation back in terms of raising. The, it, it's creating a, a ceiling, Right. In addition to a floor that might be giving way in certain parts of the country. Can I ask you a question? Do you talk about preemption in yes. your book? Did you say a little bit about that? Because yeah, that's so a huge there's, problem. The preemption that both happens at the federal level can also happen at some state level where mm-hmm. municipalities are trying mm-hmm. to do things. And increasingly, a, a, a set of red states that don't <clears throat> like what their cities and counties are doing using state preemption to overcome it. It is a challenge. Um, California's got a different problem um, because we're not going to have the state preempt and say, no, the city of San Francisco can't raise minimum wage higher. Federal preemption on particular issues is a challenge, um, but I think there is a lot more latitude that I would love to see tested in courts on what you can what can and can't be done. And again, um, the on most issues that I'm talking about, the polling will be the same that your deliberative poll did. Super majority of citizens will agree with it, whether their state legislature does or not. Yep. That, and in aggregate, that will be the super majority of the population in the country and the super majority of economic heft. And so using that to say, let's not be constrained by the fact that our Senate is not representative of the U.S. population, that we have an electoral college that prohibits things, that we have a Supreme Court that is disproportionately appointed by her happenstance of when someone happened to die on the Supreme Court. Say, well, well, you can either say, well, we're stuck, so let's wait for another 20 years to see what can happen, or we can use the progressive power of the states to move it forward. So let's go to this final round, and this unfortunately needs to be a speed round. So I'll start with, start with Lenny, and then we'll go to, to Maria. If there was you know, one wish for the long-term success of California, however defined, from seeing these poll results, Lenny, what, 
what, what do you think that we should focus on? What gives you um, a, a kind of realistic hope for a way forward? So I'm a huge fan of this deliberative mechanism to understand what people want. You really get different answers and you find there's much more agreement than disagreement. I really, really like the thing you led with on embedding this in civics education early so that people are thinking about how to, this is how you problem solve. You don't get selective information of media and argue with people. So that one to me is exciting. And mine is the same. I feel that this poll told us that democracy is the thing that people really want to lean into. They want to lean into it. They realize we're not doing enough to protect it and encourage it. But they also recognize that we have to get into some mechanisms in terms of transparency and other things in order to be able to unleash the power of democracy. And and I, I have to say the same thing, especially an underscore. Given California's stature in the world... If we can make democracy really participatory, a public engaged, and have government respond to all the things that every person actually, there's more commonality. There really is. I think that that then becomes a model. Um, And we have the resources to do it. And I'll close by lifting up, I think in some ways, what each of you said. But Maria, when you talked about states as laboratories of innovation, really that comes out of the progressive era that was incubated in California. And part of my education was to know, acknowledge the importance of the Commonwealth Club in the incubation of those early ideas that bore fruit in the 1920s and in 10s and 20s in California. Frank, Franklin Roosevelt announced the New Deal at the Commonwealth Club. He yeah. did? Yes. I didn't know and, that. And so to think about, you know, what California can do not only for the state, but really to serve as that model and and to have that kind of learning and innovation spread from California, but also from other states to California. The Commonwealth Club is 120 years, so it's a little bit longer than our California 100 (laughs) purview. But Angela, what you talked about, the importance of history as we look to the future, I think is so important. Often we have this kind of amnesia. Sometimes when when you talk about trauma, that's you know, maybe a, a good survival mechanism. But I think we need to see history clearly, but not to be stuck in the past, but really to use it as a resource to imagine and envision and ultimately to implement a different kind of future for all of us. Well, I want to thank all of you for being part of this conversation today. I know we could go on for much longer, and I hope you'll be with us as we continue the conversation online and uh, through future engagement. Um, that brings our program to a close. I would like to thank our speakers for such an engaging discussion. Uh, and again, for more information about California 100, you can go to our website, california100.org. The deliberative poll is at a, a special microsite called caconsiders.org, but you can find it from our main website as well. I'm Karthik Ramakrishnan from California 100. This Commonwealth Club program is now closed. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.